in sword drill time, grab your Bibles or your apps at home and turn with me to Romans, not 18, Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. Again, Pastor Barton's tackling a big topic this morning, and so this is the verse he has selected uh, for us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. We are obviously continuing in our Ask Anything series, and so here is the very next question that you voted on and that you wanted preached on, and it is this, uh, multiple questions, all on the same theme. Why should I believe in a God that allows such terrible things to go on in the world? Or rephrasing it a bit, why do innocent and good-hearted people suffer so terribly in atrocities? And why does God create things that harm us? such as murder hornets. Remember, this was back when that was a big thing. Maybe you've forgotten about it now. Thankfully, they never came. <laughs> so these are the questions. Of course, these are all really the same question in some ways. They have to do with the whole subject of why God allows evil and suffering in the world. This is, I always think, one of the most important questions that we need to engage in because it is obviously not a just theoretical question. It's not a theory we're talking about today. This is real life. This is not like when you're walking along Dallas Drive on a nice warm summer's day and the ocean's blowing a cool breeze and you're pondering on a theoretical question. That's not what this question's like. This question is like trying to find your way through a dark forest at night. You can't even see in front of you at all. There's roots sticking out and stones, and you have to walk through this forest and find your way, and there's fears coming in from all of the darkness. We, of course, all know those moments in life when it seems that all lights go out. Each of us knows what it means to walk a dark path in our personal lives. And of course, I don't even need to do this this morning, we all know examples of suffering, of atrocities that are so evil, that are so bad, that it seems that all is darkness. And in those moments, that is when we cry out like you have really in these questions, why does God allow so much evil and suffering in his world? Let me say this right up front. The Bible does not answer every single question that you or I may have about why he allows this particular suffering or that particular evil in the world. But what I hope to show you today is that the Christian faith, the Bible, does light a few candles in the darkness. That is to say, it does give us a few intellectual answers which I'm going to try and argue to you this morning are far more satisfying than any other religion, system of thought, or spiritual path. Not only does it give us some satisfying intellectual answers, it also, more importantly, I think, 
gives us emotional resources to be able to walk the dark path that some of us are called to walk and to walk the dark path that really is this world. And again, I want to argue that it gives us better emotional resources than any other world religion, spiritual path, or system of thought. I know those are big claims. You can judge at the end whether you agree or not. So let's think this through, this whole problem of evil and suffering. And really, I want to do four things this morning. First of all, I just want to talk about the darkness we all must face. Secondly, I want to talk about the lack of light in other worldviews outside of Christianity. And then third, I want to talk about the candles that Christianity lights. And then finally, really apply it to you, though we're going to apply it throughout. And I want to help you take the next step along your trail. Maybe your forest is dark right now, and I want to help you take that next step. All right, so let's do those four things. This is a big one today. We'll see how we do. Let's get started. First of all, let's talk about the darkness we all must face. Underline the word all. These questions that you have asked are clearly asked of the Christian faith, but I actually want to back up. I want to get underneath the questions that you asked because I'll start by saying this. Christianity does indeed have a big problem with evil and suffering. We've got to answer that. But I want to say that everyone all world religions, all secular people have the same problem, and I'm going to argue a greater problem. But let's start with Christianity first of all. I want to say right up front, we do indeed have a big problem when it comes to evil and suffering. In fact, I think if you read the Bible, the first thing that we need to say is that the Bible intensifies this problem and even makes it bigger. Because if you are a Christian, you know what it means to shout, maybe not in these exact words, but in the words of Revelation 19, verse 6, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. But if God is almighty, if he really reigns, if this is true, then all that does is intensify our problems because then why does God not use his almighty power to stop evil and suffering? It intensifies it. The Christian also would rejoice with the Apostle John when John writes these words, that God is love. But of course, if God is love, then how does God's love fit with things like murder hornets? How does God's love fit with the existence of cancer, of chronic pain, of COVID-19, or of concentration camps? So I would just say right up front that Christianity actually intensifies the problem of evil and suffering. For we don't just claim to believe in God, just some big nebulous idea of God. No, we claim to believe in the almighty God who is loving. He is sovereign and he is compassionate and caring. But then why does he allow all this evil and suffering? This is the darkness that the Christian must explain. We're going to get to that. But in this point, what I want to show is that this is not just a problem for the Christian. People often talk as if it is, as if this is the trump card. You lay this down, and that proves that Christianity is false, and so you should turn away from it to other systems of thought. But I want to show you, in fact, that it is actually the modern secular person, the modern secular worldview, that also has a problem here, a big, big problem. In fact, I want to show you that the modern secular world has a far bigger problem than the Christian actually does. How so? The modern secular worldview not only has a problem with evil, it also has a problem with good. 
A problem of evil and a problem of good. How so? Because if this material universe is all there is, which modern secular thought argues, if this material universe is all there is, then where do we even get the ideas not only of evil, but also of good? Christianity easily answers where good comes from. God exists. But if there is no God, if this material universe is all there is, where do we even get the ideas of things like good and of evil? The material universe does not give us commands for good or evil. And yet, of course, you'll always hear people in our culture, and this is good, this is not a bad thing, you'll always hear people saying, well, you ought to do this, saying this is a good thing. You should not do this, this is an evil thing. Always making great pronouncements about good and evil, but here is the big question. If this material universe is all there is, the question that gets answered backwards is the question that every kid asks on the school ground. Who says? Who says I should do that? Who says I shouldn't do that? And what I want to show you right now is that the average secular person cannot fully answer that question. Gratefully, they believe in good and evil. But what I want to say is that a material universe view, a secular worldview, cannot account for these things. It's very inconsistent. Let me give you an example so we're not just talking in theory here. Of course, in the last six months or so, the number one probably moral issue of good and evil in our society is the topic of racism. And so people are, of course, saying racism is evil, and the corresponding good would be that you need to treat everyone with equality. And of course, as Christians, we say, hooray, that's excellent. We're glad people are talking about this. But here is the question to drill down a little bit deeper. Why do you say racism is evil? The, that's the evil side. And then correspondingly, why should we say that we should treat people with equality, the good and the evil? Why? Who says we have to do that? That's the question that gets put back. So let's just think this through. If you ask this to the average person, you say, well, is it you who say that? Is that the reason why you should do this? Because you say so? People would say, no, no, no. This is not just my personal preference. That's not what good and evil is. It's not a personal preference. People would say, we believe that racism is evil regardless of anyone's personal preferences, right? I think that's pretty easy to see. Okay, well, then maybe it's our culture that argues that just racism is evil. And maybe just other cultures, they can have their own views of good and evil, and our culture has this view, but we don't want to impose our views on other cultures. No, no one's going to say that. Everyone's going to say, no, regardless of your culture, racism is always evil. It's evil in India, and it's evil in Canada. It's evil in South America. It doesn't matter where you go. So in answer to who says, people are going to say, it's not just me. It's not just our culture. It's larger. Okay, well, then maybe we can say, Maybe good and evil are something that have evolved over time. So that now our culture has evolved to this point where we say racism is evil, but we should not impose our contemporary highly evolved state, wink, wink, into ancient cultures, not even ancient, let's just say a few hundred years ago, we shouldn't impose that on the slave traders. They had not evolved far enough yet uh, to, to our state, and, and so we got to give them a lot of grace. They didn't, it wasn't really evil for them. It's now just evil for us because we've evolved to this place. Again, I don't think anyone would say that's accurate. They would say no. Our entire culture would say when it comes to racism, it's not personal preference, it's not just cultural bias, and it's not that we've evolved to this point. Racism is something that is an evil for all times, for all people, for all cultures, in all places, and correspondingly, it is always the good, the right thing to do to treat all people with equality and respect. To which a Christian will say, 
great, that's fantastic, I'm really glad that you believe that, but how do you believe that if you only believe in a material universe? If there's no God, there are no laws that apply to all people in all times and all places. You, you can't argue that anymore. It's not like our material universe just says to us, you ought to treat everyone with equality and respect. Like, asteroids don't tell us that. There is no supernova that gives us some sort of moral commands that we must follow. In other words, it does not fit with a modern secular view to say on the one hand, racism is evil, and on the other hand say, this material universe is all there is. Richard Dawkins, I think, puts this best, just to quote probably one of our most famous modern atheists, secular people. He's correct, I think, when he says these words. He says, there is at bottom, remember, coming from an atheist position, there is at bottom no design, no purpose. He says, there is no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. What he's being here is consistent. That I appreciate about him. He's saying if the material universe is all there is, you cannot argue that there are morals for all people in all times and all places. But that's what I'm trying to show you right now. That the other worldviews have a bigger problem because a modern secular worldview cannot even account for the basics of good and evil. So you've got a bigger problem than the Christian has. The Christian surely has to answer why does God allow evil and suffering, but it's very easy for us to say that racism is evil and that uh, you must treat everyone the same way, with equality and with respect. How do we say that? We believe there is a God who has given us commands that we either obey them and do the good and love our neighbor as ourselves, or we disobey them and do the evil and do things like racism. But the problem is the modern secular view cannot do that. So if you believe that racism is evil, should be removed from every culture and every society, I'd say that's great. Just realize that a secular worldview cannot support such a thing. Who are you to impose your views on other cultures, on other people? Who says anyone should follow what you say? So what I'm trying to show you in this simple first point is that already Christianity is miles ahead. We always, people like to say, why does God allow evil and suffering? This is a big Christian problem. I'm trying to argue here. It's not just a Christian problem. It's everyone's problem that all of us must give an account for why do we believe in good? Why do we believe in evil? Where do we get this from? Who says we shouldn't be racist? This is the darkness that we all must face, not just Christians. So I'm trying to level the playing field here in the first point. But now let's take it a step further. I want to argue in the next point that Christianity also has far greater resources to deal with all of the evil and suffering than any other worldview. But before we get to that, let's consider what kind of resources do you get from other worldviews if you're going to turn away from the Christian faith? And uh, now what I want to talk about is the lack of light in other worldviews. So that's the second point, the lack of light in other worldviews. Let's think about two. So potential, if you're going to reject Christianity and say, I don't want anything to do with that, here are two potential ways, worldviews, that you could embrace, and let's talk about what resources they give or do not give. First of all, let's think about the Eastern religions, which have become now so popular here in the Western world, and particularly their views on reincarnation. So if you ask someone who holds these Eastern views, you say to them, 
all this evil and all this suffering in this world, or even in your own life, and you ask them this question, why do we suffer? Do you know what the answer is? Answer, the reason why you suffer is because you made bad choices in a previous life. You suffer because it's karma. You were not good in a previous life, and now you've got to pay in this life. You are suffering because simply you get what you deserve. Now, let me say, there's a positive in this worldview. At least justice always gets served. That's one positive that you can say about this. Justice always gets served. People will always pay for their sins, whether in this life or when you're reincarnated into the next life. Yet, of course, I hope you see here, there is little to no hope in this worldview. For you must go through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of suffering, hopefully getting better and better, but you might actually get worse and worse, and you might never escape the cycle of reincarnation, or there's a tiny sliver of hope that maybe eventually you'll be a good enough person that you'll escape this cycle. So why I say that is that's an alternative worldview for you, but what I'm saying is there's very little light in the darkness. It just tells you that you deserve the darkness that's come to you, and gives you little hope that you'll ever escape from it. So that's an alternative. But let's go to one that's probably more popular, and of course that is just the average secular worldview. There's a cultural anthropologist named Richard Schweder, and he argues that our modern secular culture, get this, is actually worse at equipping people to deal with suffering than any other culture in the history of the world. Interesting, why do you think he says that? Because, let's ask the same question we said earlier, if you're just an average person and you go and ask the average secular person, why is it that I suffer? Why do I suffer so much? Why do I have to go through all these things? The answer, if they're consistent, is there is no reason. This material universe is all there is. There is no ultimate purpose to anything. There is no guiding hand beyond it all. There is no ultimate purpose. It's just how the universe is. As Dawkins said, just to repeat the quote again, there is at bottom no design. There's no design over all things, and there is no ultimate purpose. There's no evil, no good. There's nothing in this universe but blind, pitiless indifference. Again, I argue, I think he is being consistent here. Why do you suffer so much, you ask Dawkins? He'd say, there is no reason. Don't ask such questions. There is no purpose to it all. It just is what's going to happen to you. The universe really does not care if you feel lonely. The universe doesn't care if you lost your job. The universe doesn't care what's going on with COVID-19 and if the whole human race goes extinct. It just does not care. But perhaps even worse is the failure of modern secular thought to be able to deal with issues like injustice. Gratefully, our culture cares about issues of justice. But if you track it, there is actually no hope No hope there that injustices will receive the justice that is due. I mean, Hitler killed his millions, but he committed suicide. So if you're in a modern secular viewpoint, and this is what you're going to embrace, he got away with it. And many people are going to get away with all the atrocities that happens. There is no ultimate hope for justice here. So modern secular thinking says there is no ultimate purpose to your suffering, And it says there is no ultimate hope because obviously in the end we will die, our planet will die, the sun will die, and eventually the universe will become nothing 
but darkness. That is the hard reality of modern secular thought, and that is why Richard Schweder says it's the worst culture in the history of the world to enable you to deal with suffering. Now, I know I've taken a lot of time on these first two points. We haven't got to the biblical answer yet. We have not answered your questions. But I think this is really important because what I'm trying to do here is to take these questions which people try to lay down as trump cards against Christianity, and what I'm trying to do is flip them over on their heads. What I'm trying to do here is say, yes, we must uh, uh, talk about why God allows evil and suffering. We're going to get to that right now. But far too often people talk as if this is the problem for Christians. And even as Christians, they're like, maybe I should reject Christianity because I don't have all the answers. And what I am trying to show you is that these problems are problems for everyone. And I hope what I've shown you is there are even greater problems for those who reject the Christian faith and embrace worldviews such as Eastern religions or modern secular thought. So, maybe that was too long on the first two points. I hope, I hope that was all clear. Now we're going to get into the Christian answer, but that is the darkness we all must face, and that is the lack of light in other worldviews. Now it's time to start answering the question. In the third place, now let's talk about the candles that Christianity lights, the candles, and I'm using that image in particular and for a good reason. I want to show you what I'm going to call four candles that Christianity lights amongst the darkness of all the evil and suffering in the world. That is, give you four biblical responses in answer to your question of why God allows all this evil and suffering. And I've already said, but I'll just say it again, these candles are not meant to light up all the darkness, as in answer every question you have about why God allows this. The Bible just doesn't fully answer that for you. But what I want to show you now is it lights some candles that surely gives some light. It gives enough light that you can make sense of the dark forest around you, and it gives enough light that you can, most importantly, take the next step on your path so that you can continue on and you're not stumbling entirely in the darkness, and the darkness does not consume you. Okay? That's how I'm going to argue the, what the Bible says on, in response to your questions. So, Four candles. Here's the first candle. I'm going to simply call it the candle of creation. So we're lighting the candle in the dark world. I'm saying we need to reflect upon creation. Here's why. People often say, I cannot believe in a God who would create a world so filled with all the evil and suffering we see around us. And then they'll give umpteen examples, which are all perfectly good examples. That's what people say, right? Here's the first response to that. No problem. The Bible never asks you to believe in a God who created a world filled with pain and suffering and death and evil. No problems. The, the Bible's not asking you to believe that. Just go back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's a false view of God. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly show us that the God who created this world is a loving and a good God, and he did not create a world filled with evil and suffering and pain and death. He created a good world for his creatures, and it's human beings through our sin that broke the world and brought all the pain and suffering into it. So right away, you see underneath all these accusations about why does God allow all this evil and suffering, why would he do this, under it is a distrust of God's character. And 
right away. First two pages of the Bible. We can say God did not create the world this way in the beginning. It is a false conclusion to say that, oh, look at all the evil and suffering around us. God is not a good God because look at all this. No, the Bible begins differently. The Bible says when you look at all the atrocities and pain in the world, you should not think God created it this way. You should actually say, oh, there's a world that has been lost to us. There once was a world that was good that didn't have death and pain and suffering and evil in it. That's the world God created, but it has been lost to us. And then it should make you ask questions like, could our creator bring that world back again if he created it in the first place? Is that possible? We'll get to that answer a little bit later on. So this first candle is so important to light because now as you're going through and you're struggling with questions of evil and suffering, you're not accusing God of saying he made the world like this because he didn't make the world like this. It corrects our false ideas about God and right away helps us to make a little bit of sense of the darkness around us. That's the first candle. Here's candle number two. I'd say candle number two is the cross. Under all of our questions about why God allows evil and suffering against all, underneath all of this, is an idea. This is one of my most important points this morning. Track this carefully. Under all of this, there is a single idea, and it is a poisonous idea. It is an idea that has infected all of our minds. It is an idea that was introduced by the serpent in the garden. It's an idea that defames the character of God. For under all our questions and doubts about God's goodness, when we see all the evil and suffering in the world, is this single idea that God is not actually loving, that God does not actually care about us. That's the idea under all the questions that get asked about evil and suffering. God is not actually a loving God. People are going to say this. If he was a loving God, then why would he allow all the evil and suffering into his world? Why, why doesn't he stop it? That's where our, our question's gonna go. Okay, he didn't create the world this way. All right, all right, we'll grant that. But he allows it to continue, and he doesn't stop it. And so underneath it is this idea that God does not really care because if he cared, he would involve himself in it. He would make a difference. He would do something about it. How do we respond to that? Well, again, I think we actually begin with a point of agreement. If the message of Christianity is that God refuses to get involved in human suffering and pain and death, then we might say, oh, okay, well, maybe he's not loving if he's just going to stand aloof from it all. But listen, that's not the message of Christianity. Again, things have become twisted. And nowhere is this more clear that we're wrong in our ideas about God. Wrong, so wrong than at the cross. The cross shows us how wrong it is to think that God does not stop evil because he does not care. The cross is a candle that lights up so much of the darkness. Because listen, God did not remain in heaven, removed from it all. That's not the story of the Bible, that God stayed in heaven, removed from all this. God cared so much 
that God himself took on human flesh and came down into all the evil and suffering and pain and experienced it. God did not send emissaries. He did not send angels to do the dirty work for him and to have to deal with all the difficulties down on planet Earth. No. He himself came down and walked among us in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself faced extreme evil and suffering, and the cross is the ultimate example that just shatters all our ideas of God being aloof, of not caring, of standing above it all, of not getting involved. For look at the cross. Did your heart ever cry out and say, God, won't you do something about injustice? Do you not care about all the injustice in the world? Look at the sign above Jesus' head where they mockingly say he is the king of the Jews. That sign represents all the injustice where Jesus faced false accusations in court, where his character was destroyed. Lies were told about him, and he faced all the injustice of the courts of men. The Son of God faced injustice. Do you think God does not care about things like physical assault? Oh, look at the cross. Look at Jesus' face where he was literally beaten into a bloody pulp by the fists and the beatings and the whips of the Roman soldiers. He knows what it means to be physically assaulted. Our hearts cry out against things of injustice to do with sexual assault. Jesus was not sexually assaulted, but we also know that Romans crucified people naked. The Bible does not answer whether he actually was naked, but that was how things were done. It seems clear that Jesus was stripped of his clothing and was exposed, sexually exposed for the whole world, for everyone to see and for himself to feel the shame of that kind of moment. He knows what it means. Do our hearts cry out against the awful stories of murder which we could multiply so many times? Does God not care about these things? Oh, look at God in human flesh upon the cross. Look at the nails piercing his wrists, the nails piercing his feet. These are murder weapons. Look at the blood pouring down his body. John Stott wrote these powerful words. It is the cross that gives God his credibility. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? In the course of my travels, I've entered a number of Buddhist temples in different Asian countries. I've stood respectfully before a statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, serene and silent, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. Then he says, the crucified one is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, dying in our place in order that we might be forgiven. 
our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Then Stott says there is still a question mark against human suffering. In other words, we don't know why all these things happen. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. Do you feel like you are in darkness, difficulties? Are you asking God why? You may never fully get the answer to that question. The Bible does not promise that God will tell you every single answer. But listen, (laughs) whatever the reason it is for why you go through what you go through, here's the one thing you can say that is not true. In the midst of your suffering, it is not true that God doesn't care about you. Because if you think that that God does not care about me, look to the cross. If he went to the cross for you, doesn't that say something? Why would he do such a thing if he didn't care for you? Why wouldn't he have remained in heaven? Why would he come down and give up his own life in such a brutal and violent action if he didn't actually care? The cross is the antidote to the poison of the lie that all the evil and the suffering in the world says that God does not care. It's the antidote when we think God does not care about us because at the cross we learn that this is the God, the only God amongst all the gods of history who has been wounded. The only God of history who knows what it means to suffer. No other God suffered like this and he has the scars to prove it. There he is dying to take the evil that is in your heart and mine. He's on the cross dying that you and I might have our sins forgiven. Karma says, you sinned, you must pay. Jesus says, you sinned, but I will pay. This is the true light in the darkness. The cross proves that God loves us. The cross proves that God does not remain aloof from evil and from suffering. And the cross proves that God is indeed doing something about all the evil in the world. Candle number three. I'm going to call candle number three purpose. We looked at creation cross, and now I'm going to talk about purpose. Again, if you reject Christianity, you want to embrace a modern secular view, what we've said is there is no ultimate purpose to your suffering. So this can really lead to despair. It it gives you no emotional resources because you suffer, that's too bad, but there is no guiding hand over it is. There is no ultimate purpose, purpose to it all. You're just going to suffer and eventually you're going to die, and that can lead you into despair. Ah, but the Bible says that God can take something as evil as suffering and death and pain, and he can take that and turn it for your good because he is the almighty and loving creator. So just let, maybe you're in a hard spot right now, light this candle in your darkness. Listen carefully. Because there is a God, your suffering is not meaningless. It is not meaningless. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, if God is your father, now all of that suffering begins to be infused with meaning. 
We read, for instance, that Jesus was shaped by suffering. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And what was true for Jesus is true for Jesus' people. God's great rescue mission is to save us from all of this eventually. But in the meantime, what God does is he takes things as bad as pain and suffering and he uses them to accomplish higher purposes in our lives. That's why James writes these words. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. What, James, count it joy when I face trials? Why would I do that? Well, he has a reason for it, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God uses the trials to shape perseverance. Steadfastness is to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. So this again, this is not an ultimate answer to why God allows every particular thing about suffering, but it is a partial answer. And what this answer gives you is freedom from despair. Search your own experience. Is it not true that difficult times have taught you many things? Or, or talk to older Christians. I love to sit with older Christians and they recount their lives. And they'll say, in the moment I sure did not see any good from this or that in my life, but this is what God used it for. This is how that God used that to shape me, to be more like his son. And they even start rejoicing in their sufferings. You talk to many older Christians, they'll often affirm these famous lines from Robert Hamilton. Maybe you've heard this before, where he says, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. None of us will choose that. But in this fallen world in which we live, God will take our difficulties and he will shape them for his purposes so that now we have hope in the midst of our suffering. So in the middle of your darkness, light this third candle, this third candle which says there is purpose. And uh, opposite of what Dawkins was saying, there is evil, there is good, there is design, and there is purpose, even if you cannot see it all. Yet, I want to still say this. Even after all three of these candles that we've lit, we say that, okay, God did not create the world to be evil. He is actually good. He didn't make it like this in the first place. Okay, the cross proves that he didn't remain it aloof from it all. He got down into it. He got his hands dirty, so to speak. We, we can identify with his sufferings. Okay, that's great. Okay, he even has purposes for my suffering and for my pain. But at the end of the day, when we ought to press into all these, people will still say, but the sum of the atrocities in this world are so evil, even these candles don't light up the darkness well enough. And what we ultimately come to is this. Why doesn't God stop it? Why doesn't he end it all? That's the point that we come to now where we light the final candle, which is a direct answer 
to that final question that we have. The final question, final candle I think we want to light is what I'm going to call the candle of resurrection. Light this one in the darkness. I refer to the resurrection of Jesus Christ first of all. All through the Old Testament, God promised that he was going to make the world right again, free it of evil and death and pain. So all the things that you cry out for, that you say, why doesn't he do this? He says, I promised it. I'm going to make it happen. So he's on page. He's, what, he's doing what you're saying you want to happen. And then in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection is not just some great miracle, though it is. The resurrection is the launching of God's new world. It's the beginning of it, as Paul calls it. It's the first fruits. It's a foretaste of what is to come, where God raises Jesus bodily from the dead, gives him an immortal body that cannot be touched by evil or pain or suffering, and brings him to the presence of God. And for whoever belongs to Jesus, we walk the same path as our Savior. First we suffer, then we are resurrected, then we are joined into the presence of God. For everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, a day is coming when he will bodily raise us, grant us immortal bodies, and we will dwell again with our creator forever in a new creation where there is no death, no evil, and no suffering. This is the great hope of Christianity. What you want, what you're crying out for, God says you will get it in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the big distinction though, just not yet. As we read in Romans 8, we have this hope and we wait for it with patience. So everything that we're saying, God, why don't you do this? He's gonna do it. Just not quite in the timing that you and I might wish he would do. Again, I say what a contrast to our modern secular culture. For our modern secular view says there is no hope for in, in all of this, on top of all that suffering that you must face that has no ultimate purpose to it, at the end of the day, there is no hope for everything in this universe will plunge into eternal darkness. Everything's going to die, but that is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity is sheer good news, for it says, okay, take all the suffering. Let's call all that suffering darkness. Take more darkness, pile it on. Whatever story you got, pile it into the darkness until all other lights go out and all is darkness and we're staring at it. The Bible says, yes, call evil what it is. Call the darkness what it is. Let's add it all up. And once you see all that darkness, oh, stare into it. Stare into it and then realize that this is the message of the Bible. That soon and very soon, suddenly and without warning, the sun is going to rise over the dark forest. Not a sun that kind of gradually comes up, no. More like when you flick on a switch of light in a dark room and instantly, without even recognition, all the darkness flees away. That is the way it's going to occur for the Bible declares that one day Jesus is going to return suddenly and without warning. It will not be a gradual sunrise. Suddenly, the sun will come and all the darkness will be banished from his creation. The great hope of Christianity is that at the return of Jesus Christ, he will recreate this world and he will banish all evil, all suffering, all death, all pain from it so that his new world is all light. That is the hope that Christianity offers to you and that is why Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 18 these words. 
He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time that we're facing, these sufferings, (laughs) they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Take all the sufferings, yeah. It's not that the new world is going to be just a little bit better. It's gonna be so much more glorious, you can't even compare them. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky put this so well in his famous novel, The Brothers Karamazov. One of his characters says these words. He says, I have a childlike conviction that the sufferings will be healed and smoothed over, and that ultimately, At the world's finale, in the moment of eternal harmony, there will occur and be revealed something so precious that it will suffice for all hearts and justify everything that has happened with men. Let this come true and be revealed. So our great objection this morning is why doesn't God do something about all the evil and suffering? And the answer of the Bible is, oh, he will. Just not quite yet, but be assured that a day is coming when he will do exactly what you're asking for and a whole lot more. So even though the Bible doesn't answer every question about why this or why that, I hope that you see this morning, these four candles, they give us enough light in the darkness to see, to make some sense of things, and to enable us to take the next step. And so with that, all those things said, let me do a very fast final point now really apply this to our hearts. Let me talk about the next step on your trail. As you're walking this dark trail of this life, which can be often so dark, helping you take the next step. Let me speak very directly to you. If you are not a Christian today, you're just looking into Christianity, listen, we are glad you have tuned in today. Your next step is a clear one. Your next step must be to give your life to Jesus Christ. For the Bible says that only those who belong to Christ will belong to this new world, will receive this new life, receive these resurrection bodies and be welcomed into God's presence forever. So it's a very simple next step. It is to give your life to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I need you to forgive me of my sins for all the ways I've not loved you, not loved others, not lived for you. My life is now yours. Take it and do with it as you will. Don't wait too long to think on that. Oh, by all means, think on it. But remember the old stories. Some people who waited too long to seek shelter before the sun rose turned to stone. Don't get caught, for the day will suddenly come when Jesus returns. And the question is, are you ready? Are you ready for the sun to rise? For on that day, only those who belong to Christ will enter that new world. The step for you is to give your life to Christ. I'll lead you in a prayer in just a moment on how to do that. Secondly, for those of you who have given your lives to Christ, how do we just keep taking the next step in trusting Him? When we suffer, it's the most common thing for us to to begin to doubt God, to begin to turn away from Him, to believe that poisonous lie that maybe He doesn't actually care about us. And yet I try to quote a famous quote by G.K. Chesterton to you every so often, and I thought is a good time as ever to bring it up again. It's this, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? Where will you turn? To an Eastern religion 
cycles of reincarnation to modern secular thought with no purpose in your pain, with ultimate darkness at the end. Turn away to what? I know the next step might be hard for you, but the next step is to simply say, Jesus, I don't even feel like I can hardly see the next step on my path, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to enable me to take this next step. And listen, a day is coming when your trail will end. But it will not end in a cliff where you fall and plunge into eternal darkness. No, if you've given your life to Christ, if you belong to him, it ends at a door which Jesus will open for you, which Jesus will usher you into his kingdom. A new world, a world that you always believed was there, but you only could believe by faith and had never seen, and on that day your eyes will see. A world where just one day there will heal all the wounds of this life. A world that Jesus promises that one day he is going to bring and give to all who love him. And so we say, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. If you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, I'll pray a prayer and you can repeat the words after me. They're not magical words, but they will just reflect a heart of giving your own heart to Jesus. If you'd like to pray that, pray along with me. Dear God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for not loving you. Forgive me for not obeying you and living for you. I ask that you would forgive me because of Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, and because he is the only one who can bring me back to God. I ask that you would save me, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, hear these prayers. Hear these prayers and save people, we pray. We thank you for the great hope that we have in you. We thank you that you are truly a good and loving God. We thank you that by your almighty power, all your purposes will come to pass. And we long for the day, Jesus, when you will return and make all things right. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.